Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you This is the final word. Not the final word, anything else, just the final word. The one time, middle of the week, long show as opposed to all of the other shows that we are currently doing. Uh, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And this week we are doing something we have done for the last three years. Well, this is the third year, so for the last two years, uh, a, a tradition now, which is going through the new Wisdom Almanac, the good book, uh, sitting down with the editor, Lawrence Booth, for a good chunk of his time and asking him, what's in the book? What have you put in the book? Normally, it's cricket, but in a year when there was not necessarily a lot of cricket, it was other things as well. All of that will come. Good things come to those who wait. Adam, you are at home with a sick and unhappy baby who may be part of the sonic landscape of this show as we go on, and uh, you may feel like crying as well. Yes, Jeff, I can guarantee that Winnie will be part of this show there's no doubting that uh, yeah um, the hotbed of germs uh, that is nursery this is the first time she's been ill there in two weeks which might be an achievement given she's not seen a lot of babies since getting back from Australia but it's okay she's in good spirits still she's crying occasionally she wants her mummy she wants to suck on her thumb and she wants to just generally speaking be um, uh, just wants to be held and don't we all at one level so just, i'm happy to oblige but at the moment be loved yeah she just wants to be loved so that's okay we'll get through it 
Excellent. Good stuff. Um, you've been doing county championship commentary. I spent the weekend doing something, a, a childhood dream realised, commentating the Mercantile Mutual Cup, <laughs> or whatever it's called now. I actually got the chance to go through on air a discussion of all of the different things that it's been called over the period of time. Got almost all of them from memory, um, which I was pretty happy about. But, you know, it was, wasn't very exceptional. Not much to write home about a real sort of 1993-style 50-over game of, oh, 250, good score batting first, grind them out, five and over, that's a big ask. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so probably not much point going through the game itself, but uh, New South Wales won that. It felt like the most noteworthy thing that was that Western Australia were in the final. I mean, this time last week when talking mm. about the the, uh, the the machinations, it felt like Queensland were a dead cert unless WA got a double bonus point win over Tasmania and they hit in excess of 300 and bowled out Tassie for 140 to get themselves into that position. So, But they couldn't repeat the dose. And yeah, New South Wales win the domestic one-day comp, the Mercantile Mutual Cup uh, for the 12th time, I think it was. So uh, it's an interesting development that has come to our attention. Uh, Peter English, who a lot of people would remember the name, they'd think that sounds familiar because Pete for a long time was ESPN Crick Info's Australian correspondent, left that job, went into academia. He's working with the Sunshine Coast University and he's doing a survey about podcast audiences and he wants to know about the final words podcast audience. So if you're listening to this show or watching this show on YouTube, you still count. It doesn't matter if it's a video or an audio format, but he wants to know about the audience. And so he has developed a survey where he wants to ask you questions. Firstly, your credit card numbers, <laughs> your date of birth. <laughs> uh, I'm not, uh, there, there's a range of academic related questions about podcast audiences. So the link for that will be in the show notes. And if you want to do that survey for Pete. He'd be very grateful. Yeah, 10 to 15 minutes. I caught up with Pete uh, when we were on the Sunshine Coast during the Australian summer and he said he had an interest in learning more about podcast audiences and, and he identified our show as one that was of particular interest to him. So with his background in cricket, it's all pretty straightforward there. 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, we've had a look over it. Uh, there's nothing, there's no curly ones there. It's, uh, it should be all at the front there with the legality of it all. You, you sign away your life. No, not really. You just say that you're happy uh, for your responses to be included in the academic research. All anonymous, of course. And yeah, you'd be doing a favour to a friend of ours, Pete English, who did such fine work uh, back in the day with Crick Info, the role that Dan Bredig does these days who you'd know well if you've listened to this show over a long period of time so all down underneath in the show notes from the the sunshine coast university uh, academic pete english and yeah play along be involved in the survey the county championship adam you were there pretty much freezing to death oh yeah that weekend we saw the pictures from headingley of the the snow the the match that got snowed off which is unusual you'd have to say for what is notionally a summer sport um you were, were you outdoors doing commentary on the middlesex game at it wasn't so much that we were outdoors we were indoors in the tavern stand but we had to have our doors open which we may as well have been outdoors and yeah after at the end of a two-hour session when it's sort of I don't know, three or four degrees outside. Stevie Eskenazi, the captain of Middlesex, said it's the coldest he's ever batted in. And I can't believe Jack Leach was able to bowl as effectively as he was with fingers that must have been frozen through. He was blowing on them every ball, but it it couldn't have made much of a difference. And in the end, Leach played a, a, a massive role in turning that game around. It was an extraordinary game of cricket to watch first up. So day one, Middlesex make in excess of 300. Robson makes 165. And then... Somerset at one point, a nine for 89. They're 224 runs behind, about to follow on. 
They put on 83 for the 10th wicket. They end up passing the follow-on mark, bowling out Middlesex for 140 in the second dig and chasing down 285. So a classic come-from-behind effort for them there in the freezing cold at Lords. But yeah, it was beautiful to have cricket back early April, all the rest of it. As you say, the snow uh, stopping play in Yorkshire. It felt a long way from home, Toto. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that things um, improve slightly for you. We were very comfortable at Bankstown Oval, which was interesting seeing the the honour boards up there. A lot of familiar names, uh, three different war brothers, uh, Nathan Bracken, Kevin Roberts, um, Lenny Pascoe, Jeff Thompson, etc., um, who who graced the Bankstown Club over the years, and it was nice of them to have us. Uh, importantly, in that first county round, Darren Stevens, uh, a couple of weeks away from his forty fifth birthday, made another first class century, uh, a, a player who will be discussed later on in the show with Lawrence Booth for other reasons, um, but. <laughs> made that 100 and and for that reason would have to be our Seabus Super Performer of the Week. I couldn't agree more. Don't throw away your innings in retirement. Visit seabussuper.com.au forward slash the final word. Uh, Get all the information you need about uh, getting your super sorted out and um, you can get a product disclosure statement in any format you like uh, from there and you'll know that past performance is no reliable indicator of future performance. I suppose though with Darren Stevens, it very much is into, as you say, nearly into his fourth decade of first class cricket and the fourth decade where he's been able to make a century, which is just incredible when you consider that he started off as a batsman, then a batting all-rounder, then a bowling all-rounder, then a frontline bowler and now kind of a, a bowling all-rounder again uh, down there at Canterbury. Yeah, one of a, a number of standout performances. James Vince made it 231 at better than a runner ball. And final word favourite, Jeff, I thought you'd like to know that uh, Reese Topley took five wickets for Surrey uh, leading the attack in what ended up being uh, an unfortunate um, result for Surrey but uh, over at Bristol, but uh, a great start to the season for the big left armour. Someone who can only be described as a big unit. There is no other way, no <laughs> other legal way to describe Reese Topley. The IPL is up and about as well. Four games done at the time of recording, probably five or six by the time this episode goes out. We're doing a bit on that with the final word on the YouTube channel. It's not necessarily on the podcast feed because they're, they're shorter, quick grab shows, so we're doing what we're calling the speed round twice a week which is Mondays and Fridays most likely which is a a wrap-up of not of the games per se but of uh, bits that have caught our eye things that we've found interesting or amusing Uh, we're also catching up with Glenn Maxwell on a roughly weekly basis to find out what's going on over in India with the live crosses to the Bubble Hotel Uh, and we'll be doing some other bits and pieces uh, when we can maybe some live watch along stuff some a few little match wraps here and there if if and when we get time to do it Um, so if you're IPL enthused head to the final word cricket podcast channel on YouTube. I think we're committed to the live watch along. I'm keen to do it. Wednesday, you and me, Jeff, it'll be the Sunrisers of Hyderabad against the Royal Challengers mm. of Bangalore. So Warner against Maxwell <laughs> is another way of interpreting that contest. And Maxie was brilliant it'll last be, it'll week. It'll be about two hours after this podcast goes up, maybe, uh, or unless I'm getting the time <laughs> zones wrong. Because, no, I think, no, the pod's getting launched British time. So actually it'll be over by the time this podcast oh, okay. goes Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed it. You can rewatch it back on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, that didn't quite work out. We have an embargo to honour uh, with Wisdom Almanac, of course, uh, that, that, that mm. goes out at the same time. So we're recording this a couple of days before it actually will go out. There you go. One other bit about the IPL, which didn't make our speed round. It's the London Merrill election at the moment. And, you know, my, my mm. history or my background in politics, I always like to look through the, the various promises that candidates are 
issuing. And Sadiq Khan, who's the incumbent Labor mayor, has been talking about bringing the IPL to London, which I thought was noteworthy. Probably not going to make it into our speed round, but he says that conversations between Surrey and his organisation, Greater London, and the IPL have started. So it might be the case that I suppose they play NFL games in London. They bring them over for a couple of Mm -hmm. weeks and we've seen those sort of exhibition games. But imagine that. Imagine a couple of IPL games being played at the Oval uh, and Lords uh, at some point in the future. It'd be wild. I'm just just thinking of, you know, those times when it would be Essendon playing the Demons in San Diego or whatever. Yes. You know, to put on an exhibition game in the the USA. I, I suppose people actually already like cricket in England, so it's an easier sell. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't think of this when we were in Canberra, but we didn't promise to bring the IPL to Australia or something like that. And speaking of <laughs> exhibition games, by the way, the uh, Mr. Sheffield final is uh, this weekend mm. uh, between Queensland and New South Wales at AB Field. I note on that, by the way, that the UK clearly didn't get the nanny in the 90s because I've received a number yeah. of messages and a very confused look by my girlfriend who's like, what on earth are you two blokes talking about when listening to mm. the podcast back the other day? And I'm like, you know, the nanny, Fran Drescher. She's like, I have no idea what you're on about. And upon Googling it, wow. a couple of messages on Twitter, that must wow. have been one of those American programs that got picked up with enthusiasm in Australia, but not not in the UK. So, But I, I gather it is coming to one of the streaming services soon from Googling it last night. So it might be the case that if you're in the UK, okay. you can know what we're talking about when we talk about the Mr. Sheffield yeah. Shield and uh, its conclusion this weekend with a lot it. of test players playing. <laughs> Look forward to to becoming a cult hit with, um, you know, <laughs> you, you sort of talk about cricket hipster internet. Through that, a really niche bunch of people <laughs> will get really into the nanny, say 15 years later or 25 years later or whatever it might be. Um, they'll start watching it from from the start and it'll be like those people who just discovered Breaking Bad or whatever. Oh, my God, this show's fantastic. Maybe we should do a uh, – well, I know we've talked about doing a recap podcast of Sliders, but if it gets really mm. big, an episode-episode recap, Cat podcast of the nanny, eh, it might happen. It's yeah. you and I. Anything's possible. Yeah, it, it was a long time ago. I remember when the actor who played Gracie popped up on uh, Californication with David Duchovny. Yep, it was yep. um, it was an extremely confusing time. <laughs> um, I, I did I did not enjoy that experience. Nothing felt right about it. Yeah, so that's that's where we're at with all of those things. I think this week we. We want to just plough into this interview because we've we've just finished speaking to Lawrence. It's a fascinating walk through everything that's happened over the last year. So we probably just need to play a quick little game and then get into it. What do you? Let's reckon? do that. Let's do that. We'll play a little bit of a nerd pledge. Nerd pledge. The game that we play with people on our patron page who quiz us. The reverse quiz. Unlike other shows that like to quiz the audience, the audience quizzes us. Um, They send us a number, and that number is via an amount of money, to be frank. It's something that helps support the show, but it also relates to cricket in some way, and we have to guess what the number is. Uh, Before we do that, I I have to make good on a promise I made last week that I didn't make good on. Yes, so we received a message on social media from Chris March who wants to know more about your music festival story from last week that you you teased us with in the intro and never went on to explain. So, and I yeah. think, as you say, I think it's got a nerd pledge link. It does. It's, and, and probably in retrospect, it's not a story that really um, it will survive well having to wait for a week. You know, it's not, it's not that good a story. Like, it's, you know, it's okay. <laughs> um, but I was, I was at a music festival. Um, it was maybe, I don't know, heading head late into the evening and I was walking through a crowd of people and somebody called my name and said... 
Jeff, that's my name, if you don't know, if you're just listening to this for the first time. And I said, yes. And this gentleman said, um, you, you will not know who I am, but I know who you are. And I said, okay, right. And he said, my name is Kieran Barnes Jenkins. And I said, you are not as good a leg spinner as Cameron White. <laughs> and... I, it was it was a real nothing but net feeling because it was like weeks earlier on the show we discussed a nerd pledge from Kieran Barnes Jenkins which had that uh, relationship to Cameron White the Victorian leg spinner and somehow despite despite having had an incident this was only night one of the festival and I'd already managed an, an incident where I got the water bottle filled it up with ice and topped it up with water and then realised it was the one that had been mostly full of whiskey that I'd brought in you know for, for the cold nights uh, and then realised that I had no choice but to finish it because otherwise it was going to be ruined. It would only be good while the ice was cold. So that had already happened on night one. And and yet in that moment, I was still able to recall the nerd pledge, the number and the answer and who it belonged to. And it felt like a great achievement at the time. Outstanding. Well, thank you, uh, KBJ, who I know from my former life and uh, for supporting the show on Nerd Pledge. All the better for it. Jeff, we have two numbers up today. That's right. The first of those comes from Hugh Moorhead. It is in pounds. It's seven pounds 28. And so if you don't understand the rules of Nerd Pledge, it means that seven to eight in some way, there could be a decimal point in there. There might not be, but seven to eight in some way has to relate to cricket in a way that Hugh uh, has found meaningful. And we've got to work out what it means. So seven to eight. In sequence, what might that suggest to you, Adam Collins? Well, Jeff, it's been taken twice in Test cricket, and I was only going to mention one, but I saw these lovely links between the two, and I thought I'll, I'll bring them all together because it relates to our home ground, the Melbourne cricket ground. So we'll start with the second, which was Hugh Trumbull. He took seven for 28 against England at the G in 1904. In England's first innings of 61, he didn't even get a bowl. <laughs> Noble, four for 19. Timmy Cotter, six for 40. And, and Hugh Trumbull was sort of left on the bench. But in the second dig, when they were chasing 320 and were all out for 101, he did get on and bowled 6.5 overs and took seven for 28. So it was busy. Lots of runs and lots of wickets. <laughs> And what? are those eight ball overs? No, no, no. This was six ball overs by 1904. So, six ball overs. So, and, and that included a hat trick. So he picks up Bosey, Plum Warner, and Dick Lilly, leg before for the third wicket. It was his second hat trick as well, having, having taken one in the corresponding fixture against England on the same ground, the MCG, back in, in 1902. So one of two Trumbull hat tricks wow. at the G. And, and in the so, second of those, the figures are incredible because, as I say, he doesn't what? bowl in the first dig. And then the second time around, yeah, they're chasing heaps, but he doesn't bowl until deep into the innings and then goes on to only get 6.5 overs, but, gee, he made them count. So 41 deliveries. Yeah. You know, excluding if there were some extras. In 41 balls, seven of them were wickets, leaving him 34 other balls, which conceded 28 <laughs> runs. So they weren't holding back against him, you no. know, when he wasn't taking wickets. And then as far as the names of the, those dismissed, like what great names, Bernard Bosanquette. Uh, Plum Warner and uh, the penis flower himself, Dick Lilly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a memorable analysis. Seven for twenty eight, no maidens, mm. of course. There, so and the reverse is true of the second seven for twenty eight, where there are a lot of mm. maidens. So this is nine years earlier. Uh, the first time those figures were taken were by um, a tragic figure in the game. It must be said, Billy Bates, uh, who was another off spinner, who. Uh, 
in this test match in uh, 1893 at the MCG again. Mm. England makes 294, Australia all out for 114. And the great Yorkshireman Billy Bates comes on third change and takes seven for 28 from 26.2 overs. So very economical along the way. And it included the first test hat trick for any Englishman. Uh, and the second ever in tests, of course, Fred Spoth took the first one and the first mm. for England and the second of all time was Billy Bates in his seven for 28 on the same ground where Hugh Trumbull would take his second hat trick um, some 11 years later. But yes, in his case, it was Percy McDonald, uh, George Giffen and George Bonner, who were batsmen five, six and seven. And then in the second innings, he picks up seven for 74. So seven for 28 with a hat trick the first time around. 7 for 74 in the second to give him match figures of 14 for 102. And that was the first 10-wicket match in Test match history. So by definition, the best figures ever taken. No one had ever taken 10, and he sort of smashed that world record, Usain Bolt style, and and took 14 for his trouble, 14 for 102. Also made a half century with the bat. So that really is one of the all-time great individual performances. It stacks up to this very day. And it went on to be the first ever innings victory in Test cricket as well, with England beating Australia by an innings and heaps there at the G in 1883. I said it was 10 years before. It, was, it, was, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't 11 years before. It was 21 years before um, the Trumbull time. But, yeah, I mentioned it's a tragic story, Billy Bates, and on another Australian tour four years later, 1887-88, we talked about this briefly on Storytime in the past. He was bowling in the nets and a straight drive was hit back at him, smashed him in the eye, and he could no longer see, and in turn, he, he never bowled again. He attempted to kill himself on the way back to England on the ship uh, unsuccessfully, but he eventually died. Depression set in, and he passed away at age 44 in 1900. Jesus. All up. He played 15 test matches. All of them were in Australia, which is still the record for an English player in terms of away versus home. A player never having Mm. turned out at home, but that's the most that someone's played away. And in those 15 test matches, he took 50 wickets at 16.4 with that famous best bowling of 7 for 28, the second hat-trick of all time, the first for England, Billy Bates. You've taken me on a journey, Adam. So the the lesson is if you take seven for 28, you will get a hat trick. That's just, that's just how it is. <laughs> Especially yeah. at the G. Oh, well, uh, salute to Billy Bates and fitting on a show where we'll talk a fair bit about cricket history. Uh, the other number is from Sammy Dowd, a long-time supporter of the show, a loyal loyalist in the, uh, in the ranks of the final word. $2.78 is the number. And I have no doubt, Adam, that if you were doing this number, you would have gone to the history of Errol Holmes, the 278th Test player for England, who who played five tests as a batsman, averaging 16 and took two wickets, um, but was apparently very good Perfect. at the level below that. And what a great name as well. Errol Holmes, um, prominent as, as a board member or administrator with the MCC and, and with Surrey Cricket Club, which is a, a strange double. But... I think we know what this one is. I think we know what, if, if we look at it as a score, 278 people who've made this score as in first-class cricket include A.B. de Villiers, Don Bradman, V.J. Merchant, Dennis Compton, and your favourite Sanjay Mandraker, but somebody else made 278 batting at first drop in first-class cricket. You know who it is, don't you? Isn't it tickling somewhere? Who made Gosh. Who made 278 I'm under quickly, the pump here. facing 318 balls at the North Sydney Oval? At 278 at North Sydney Oval facing yep. 318 balls. I feel very Cruising much... Cruising to a triple tonne and under didn't the quite cosh. get there, but 
a great day, a great, exciting day. You, you and I were both following this innings very closely. We're both, this isn't the Dominic Thornley one because that the, he was short. No. Of, he was short of two seventy eight. No. Uh, who made two seventy eight? I'm padding now because I'm 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 having that horrible it, moment where it's obviously an innings I know, but I, I can't quite. It is pluck it. How, how long? How long ago are we talking? Within the last five or six years. So this person may be currently employed by the Final Word Cricket Podcast. In oh, 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 right. Okay, okay. First, uh, okay. Christ. Sorry, Maxie. Fuck. Uh, yes, uh, Glenn Maxwell's uh, ridiculous innings to start his um, – well, not to start his campaign. He, he was uh, he was already uh, playing for Victoria at the start of the season, but he um, was uh, – well, it was the day before, wasn't it, that he was with the test squad as injury cover for Sean Marsh. They released him to play in the Shield round, went down to North Sydney Oval and, and played against a an international quality attack, which from memory included Doug Bollinger, Steve O'Keefe, Trent Copeland and one other. But I know all, all the bowlers had played test cricket mm. and he, um, he pants them. Yep. Uh, he hit 36 fours and four sixes at North Sydney Oval and basically just got out when he got bored, <laughs> having been out there for so long. So, yes, uh, Glenn James Maxwell, his highest score in first-class cricket for Victoria, 278. That's got to be it. Sammy's last number was Dean Jones adjacent, so there's no way that this number is not Glenn Maxwell adjacent. Thank you, Sammy, uh, and thank you for our first Nerd Pledger this week, which was Hugh Moorhead, and thank you to Kieran Barnes-Jenkins for uh, for tapping Jeff on the shoulder. Nice way to start our Nerd Pledge segment. Uh, Jeff, we're ready to take a break, aren't we? Which we'll do now, and when we mm-hmm. return, uh, we'll be back with the editor of the Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac, Lawrence Booth. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. It's so small you can fit it in your pocket. You can attach it to your belt. It might save your life one day. It's the Zolio. Zoleo, the magic box that could save your life or could just enable you to send a long description of a sunset to somebody who wants it. Uh, we were just talking about Sean Marsh a moment ago, whose uh, who's nickname was often SOS, S-O-S. And as you can see on the video there, SOS is written into the Zolio, uh, oh, a little box to be. that taps into the world's satellite uh, communications network and lets you do a couple of things. Uh, one of them is that it turns your regular smartphone into a satellite phone for the purposes of textual communications, emails and SMSs. So you can be anywhere in the world, on any mountain, on any lifeboat, uh, forge every stream, uh, ford every stream. I'm not sure what you do. I suppose you ford it, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow. Whatever you're doing, you can text or email anyone on your phone with your Zolio. And the other thing you can do is use that little SOS hatch, open it up, see the red button. Everyone wants to press a red button. It's there to press. If you press it, someone will come and rescue you. They will know exactly where you are, down to the minutes and the seconds, the GPS coordinates, uh, and they will come and save you uh, if you have, say, fallen down a mountain or been uh, cast adrift at sea you will be able to let people know where you are. This is what a Zolio can do. Yeah, when you were talking about getting involved in streams, I'm more thinking going up mountains. If you're ever going to go hiking or getting mm. in the great outdoors, 
um, you want one of these. And you also want to get one of these if you're going to come overseas with us to Pakistan and Brazil next year. We don't know what mm-hmm. the uh, arrangements will be uh, as far as uh, satellite telephonic communication. What we do know is nope. we're going to go with a fistful of Zolios. So I suggest that if you are thinking about going, that it might be a good time to invest in mm. one of those. And, and, and in general play anyway, as we've learned through the course of the last year or so, talking about the magic box, they let you stay connected to the world when you otherwise aren't. Think about the frustrating times mm-hmm. when you just need to send that message off. You just need to be plugged in and you can't be because the network's down. This will make sure that's never the case in the future. Zolio.com is where you get one from, Jeff. That is. It's very convenient. It's very light, as you can see. I'm able to throw it up and down in one hand. Uh, I wonder if we could do something sort of infomercial style where I try to cut it in half with a carving (laughs) knife or something and can't do it because it's so tough. I won't do that just in case. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's very convenient. And it is a very powerful thing. You can be anywhere at all, middle of the Gobi Desert, middle of the Sahara Desert, middle of the Great Sandy Desert. I love whoever came up with that name. Top work. Ah, this desert is big and sandy. Let's call it the Great Sandy Desert. Uh, You can be there and you can say, I want to send an email to my mum and you can do it with this magic box that connects to satellites. Z-O-L-E-O.com. Check them out. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. It's The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And it being mid-April, it's that kind of year. It's the year for a yellow book, a thick yellow book called The Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac. And this year, it is a book that's very different. The last two years, we've uh, talked to the editor of this publication, Lawrence Booth. Once it was in the MCC library, of course, before COVID and last year down the Zoom screen. And that's where I welcome him again today. Hello, Lawrence. Hello, Adam. Hello, Jeff. You all right? Doing well. We are. We are. We, we've, uh, we've. well, I guess we've all had interesting years, haven't we, in different ways? But uh, I know 12 months ago when we talked, we already knew that this would be uh, a fascinating edition of the book 2021. I suppose to an extent a collector's item because it's going to be thinner uh, and different because of the lack of cricket played uh, through the calendar year of 2020. Um, maybe we should start there before getting into the nitty gritty. How did you go about assembling uh, this book under such difficult circumstances and, and how does it differ from previous years apart from the obvious with it having fewer pages? Yeah, it was interesting actually. We When um, the first lockdown was announced in the UK, certainly in March, we obviously had a discussion about what will wisdom look like if there's no cricket? The worst case scenario was no cricket in the English summer. And we reckon that we'd still, wisdom would still weigh in at about 800 pages. <laughs> um, that's with no cricket. And we thought, goodness me, how, how is this book sort of built up over the years? I mean, even the wartime editions were, the thinnest ones were sort of about 280, 290 pages, and they were five or 600 pages shorter than the, the sort of previous edition, if you like. So what we've ended up with is is 1,248 pages, which is 288 pages shorter than last year, but with a bigger uh, front two sections, that the meaty reads, if you like. They're about 300 mm. pages, which is about 60 pages up on last year. So possibly in our sort of paranoia about having a thin book, we, we commissioned quite a bit for the front of the book because we wanted to make sure there was still stuff to read. And the result was that we've got more to read than ever, even if it's the thinnest wisdom since, I think, 1980 or 1981. It sounds very familiar, Lawrence, because every week that Adam and I say, oh, there's not much to do on the show this week, we end up going for about an hour and 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> cricket's always had that skill of making conversation even when there's not much going on. You know, that's the skill of commentary and the, the slow sessions of a test match. So in some ways, was that just the book reflecting the sport in, in its most uh, precise possible way? Yeah, I think that's right. There, 
there's always stuff to say about cricket, and that's why we why the 800 page figure came out. We knew that we could still the, the part one, the, the the big comment section, we could fill that easily with all kinds of ideas we'd had down the years that we could reuse. We thought of ways of if there's no no cricket, how would we do the five cricketers of the year? Would we name five players who should have been chosen at some point in their career? Would we name five players who create who did most for the pandemic off the field? You know, there there were ways of doing it. As it turned out, there was enough cricket for us to do a a regular five. I mean, obviously, there were there were two main themes last year, weren't there? There was the coronavirus, and then there was Black Lives Matter, and both of those obviously t- overlapped, tied in with cricket in so many different ways. So there, there was plenty of sort of editorial to go at, and then the cricket happened. So you know, <laughs> came out okay in the end, I think. And from a COVID perspective, I suppose that's front and center when you look at the cover of the book, the, the very fact that it's an iPhone image taken by Danny Rubin of Stuart Broad wearing a face mask. I mean, to think that we would have even conceived of those, uh, that combination of uh, factors to be on the front of Wisden, it seems remarkable. But yeah, you saw that as an opportunity just to lead on the front foot and explain to those picking up the book what this is going to be about. I think so. I think, you know, one of Wisden's charms, I guess, is that it's a social history as much as it's a, a cricketing history. And if you're not reflecting what's going on in the world, you're, you're probably not doing your job. I mean, some people have objected about the cover on social media. They say they they say they hate it. And that's a strong word. It's a, it's a cover of it. It's a photo. And, but, but if we weren't... Get, coronavirus was the story of the year in for the rest of society as much as it was for cricket. And mm. we had to get a mask on the front cover. That was the emblem of, of, of life last year around the world. And Stuart Broad was one of England's players of the summer. So the, the combination seemed to make sense to me. And that's where you start the, the editor's notes as well. And perhaps that's how we'll conduct this interview as we have in previous years. Notes by the editor of Wisden is such a significant part of the discussion around uh, release day. I mean, these words, uh, I suppose, Lawrence, you write many, many thousands of words each year uh, in your day job working for the Daily Mail. But you must know that when you sit down at the keyboard to compose these, that they're going to be read by everybody who matters, really, in terms of those who work in and around the game. And, and you kind of better get them right, or you better make sure they are there's something you can you, that stack up and will stand the test of time. Yeah, that's that's basically it. Um, you know, I could write any old rubbish for the mail and, and frequently do and, and get away with it. Um, <laughs> Certainly if, not if, saying that. Yeah, for Winston, you, you may not be in a job the following year. So, no, I don't really mean that, uh, Daily Mail editors. I, I love my job there. Um, but no, you, you're right. The, the Winston words are sort of poured over and they're there for time immemorial and you, and you do want to get them right, or at least you don't want to get them so wrong that you look, you look daft. I mean, actually, the challenge this year was to... How do I start? Because usually the, the first chunk of the notes is, is often two pages and it's about it's about England losing the ashes or it's about slagging off the hundred. But this year was different. People had died, you know, it's, yeah. uh, and people involved in cricket. And I had to find a way of reflecting that without being too maudlin or uh, sentimental or looking at it, exploiting a situation. Um, it, it wasn't easy, actually. It's probably the hardest start to a set of notes I've done, and this is my 10th edition. I think that's something we all wrestle with on a not every day but but on a regular basis covering sport is the contradiction between the seeming irrelevance or, or you know frivolousness uh, of sport but also the fact that it does matter somehow even though it seems like it shouldn't matter there, there are ways in which it is important um, emotionally spiritually culturally to so many people and so we often get stuck between those two positions of thinking that what we're covering shouldn't be important but it still is. Well, and that's actually the sort of conclusion I, I sort of arrived at in the mm. first bit of the note. I mean, actually, the first line of 
the notes this year and I just have to read off the press releases. Cricket has never been less important than in 2020 and never more. And I, f- I felt like sports meaninglessness and meaningfulness were both totally out there last year. You know, we we knew it didn't matter, but at the same time, it was a wonderful distraction in, in many ways as the summer panned out. You know, that first test match, England-West Indies at the GS Bowl on July the 8th, was probably watched worldwide. Um, and it's one of the reasons, we'll go on to this later, no doubt, but why Michael Holding and Ebony Rainford-Brent's passages were, were made such an impact. It rained and they had plenty of time to say what they did. But but yes, sport is trivial and, 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 and it means everything. And that, that's, I think, what comes through, I hope, in the notes. Yeah, you conclude that section by describing it as a salvation uh, last year, which I thought was a, a good way to wrap it up. And kind of going through also the idea that, yeah, people died of COVID-19 who we know the, the Crick Info stats pages from, but, but also a lot of people related to the game who we don't and are the lifeblood of the sport who have passed away uh, as a consequence of the disease. Yeah, I mean, actually one of the most sobering moments was, was and I mentioned this in the notes, David Hodgkiss, the Lancashire yeah. chairman. Now, when last year's wisdom went to press, we have him as, as the Lancashire chairman. We, we name all the, the officers for each county and there he was. And by the time the book had come out, he, he, he died. So the, the, the kind of pace of, of what happened was frightening and he, he almost embodied that. So I made, I made sure he got a, an early mention in the notes. There was the, um, I, I guess, the resourcefulness that had to be showed by plenty of people at the ECB to get some semblance of a season on, you know, which you talk about in depth, the, the potential financial cliff that, the that English cricket was going to go off if they didn't manage to get some sort of summer stage. The fact that the counties managed to get two competitions in which you described as faintly miraculous. And there was a thread running through of, of kind of World War One comparisons in a way that things that have thrown cricket majorly off course, um, which not many things have managed to do, but you kind of, it, it may seem like it's trivialising, but you do in a way have to hark back to those, to, to the two world wars to find things that have disrupted cricket in that same sort of way. And you had Patrick Kidd write a long piece about how cricket was affected during the wars. And it seemed to me like that must have been on your mind because I noticed a Rupert Brooke um, reference pop up in, in your notes as well. The sort of the last of the idealist um, Edwardian poets coming into World War One before the, the much more realistic um, poets like Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon took over. Yeah, is it? Well, uh, still be honey, still for tea, and all, all that sort of business. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, we commissioned Patrick when at a point when it looked like there might be no cricket, but it, but in the event, it it didn't matter really because the point was we were talking about the last time cricket was majorly interrupted by anything, and th- th- you know that that's what made last season sort of not not quite unprecedented because <laughs> there was no cricket played in 1945 and several other summers before that, but. Since, since that year, it was the first time that something has happened beyond cricket's control and we, we had to reflect that. I mean, in the it's interesting in the notes, I mean, ECB usually get a bit of a, a pasting <laughs> in this section of the book, but they did a terrific job last summer. They reacted quickly. They they uh, they sort of brought forward some payments to the counties. The the bubble that Steve Elworth and his team created was, was exceptional. Uh, the only real minor threat to it was when Joffre Archer briefly went home to Hove, and that was dealt with pretty quickly. Uh, so, hats off to them. They they only lost just over £100 million when they, Tom Harrison, the, the chief exec, was talking about 380 was the worst-case scenario. They may lose more this year. People have lost jobs. You know, lots of things still went wrong, 
but it wasn't quite as catastrophic as it could have been. And I think that's down to good management by Harrison and Co. Yeah, and it showed what a huge appetite there was for when it did return. I mean, 18 men's matches in the space of 10 weeks, those aforementioned county competitions that were squeezed in, the Bobbles Trophy and the Blast. And thankfully, West Indies women uh, came out as well to, to make that possible. Otherwise, the, the women wouldn't have played throughout the course of the year. And I suppose when you look at the, the bubbles and you reflect upon them, and we've had a lot of conversations with cricketers, including Glenn Maxwell just last week, about how tough it's been for them. Perhaps this wasn't a factor that we considered beforehand, but the mental health of players players that you talk about in the notes there that it was very taxing and we asked a lot of our cricketers last year. Yeah we did and actually I mean that that particular subject especially for the England team at the moment has become has gone front and centre really the last few months of the tour of India and yeah. you know, Butler going home after one test best and missing the first two Archer and Stokes missing Shrank and so on there are any number of examples and I, I, I did think should I be doing a late twist on this or that no I'm going to stick to my guns here because I do believe that they've got the principle right they do have to look after their players. And, and let's let's say they'd played Stokes, Archer and Butler and Bairstow throughout the whole thing. We'd have been jumping all over them, wouldn't we? <laughs> We're saying this is not sustainable. England are playing 17 tests in the year, 18 if you throw in Sydney or whichever the last test is going to be yep, yep. Uh, in Australia. Um, there's a World 2020, there's the IPL now, which we have we have to accept as part of the, the, the fixture list. Th- these guys will go crazy if, if a lot of this stuff is played in bubbles. So I think, you, again, you have to take your hats off to the ECB and say that they've they backed up their their promise to look after the players' mental health. You drew attention to the issue of inequality between cricketers. So you have these England players getting worked as hard as they are, but they're also among the best paid cricketers in the world. You have the West Indies cricketers, the Pakistan cricketers, the Bangladesh cricketers and so on who are being paid an absolute fraction of that amount. The West Indies players took a 50% pay cut as well just to try to keep things on the road this year and yet those teams are the ones who were integral to having the richer cricket countries be able to keep their own economies on course. Uh, that, That disparity is something that we don't really talk about a lot and particularly you know when looking at issues like corruption in cricket and so on the the vulnerability when when some cricketers are paid so much less yeah that's a good point um i mean that that specific point you make at the end i didn't i didn't get into but that's probably one for for future notes but it is it's it's a good point i mean jason holder spoke very eloquently about the the unlevel playing field at the end of the england tour uh, and he was quite right and and what played out was totally predictable wasn't it you know that different countries cancelled exactly the tours you'd expect them to cancel Australia I think I said moved heaven and earth to make sure India could come I mean look from a financial perspective you can hardly blame them but that is the that is the game as it is now and and the and the the second tier test nations if you like or let's let's say the teams outside the so-called big three were left to rot in a way. I mean, West Indies are supposed to be grateful for the fact that England have agreed to one more test and two more T20s at the start of 2022. Should they be that grateful for that? I don't know, really. England are going to Pakistan for two T20s later this year. Uh, you know, these feel like sort of bones, scraps that are tossed, really, by by, by the big teams to to say that they're, they're doing something to help the smaller teams. But look, it's, it's a huge issue. Um, and it's going to keep playing out for the next few years. Yeah, as you put at the end there, cricket seems happy to ram home the point about financial inequality with respect to the way that different uh, boards uh, treat countries that perhaps don't quite have the same financial clout. Yeah, the heroes of last summer really were in many respects that those West Indian tourists, and the timing was kind of astonishing, wasn't it, with, with uh, Black Lives Matter, um, so much attention through the month of, month of June for, for obvious reasons after the murder of George Floyd, and then we, we reach... Um, the first test match at the AGS Bowl, 
the knee being taken, the fist being raised by the West Indies team as well, the forceful comments being made by every West Indian player in that diary room that Sky set up. This wasn't just like a one-off statement and that was it. They were all happy to articulate their position about racism in the community and in the sport. And of course, that's the morning where Ebony Rainford-Brent and Marky Holding make their sort of memorable intervention on television. But perhaps what I found more interesting about the notes section is that you've, you're very sharp here about uh, cricket uh, being happy to, quote, uh, give a sympathetic ear or a pat on the shoulder or a promise that things must change. But we look later in the season. No knee was being taken when England played Pakistan, nor when Australia came uh, later in the year. The women did, but this is the men I'm, I'm focusing on here. And as you say, uh, by not taking a knee, cricket raised a finger. Yeah, I was astonished by what happened, as you can tell from what I'd written in the notes. It seemed like such a simple gesture, uh, such a basic show of solidarity. Um, and it felt like an insult to the West Indies. W- were we saying that England were only taking a knee to appease uh, a black team? It, it certainly looked like that, because yep. um, they carry on doing it against Ireland, and then they seem to get bored, and they, they hide behind this line that uh, the education is more important than protest. I mean, Aaron Finch said the same thing when he came over for the, the White Ball series. And England and Australia clearly sort of agreed this line behind the scenes. And it just looks so bad. You know, these mainly white teams with terrible histories of race relations in both countries. The black team's gone home and they decide not to do it. And, and then people hide behind, oh, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist movement, they want to defund the police. They find all kinds of reasons for not doing the basic gesture. Of course, that, that, that plays right into the hands of the people we don't want it to play into the hands of. And I, I thought it was appalling. Yeah, and the old don't mix politics and sports set kind of almost, I felt that position almost prevailed, which seems like such a contrast to, I think it was the 8th of July, wasn't it, the day uh, where um, where England started their series against the West Indies and, and uh, the Mikey Ebony moment uh, played out. Uh, to think that yeah, within two months, it was back to, oh, well, you can't mix sport and politics. And as you point out in the notes, the incongruity of that when you think that it's 50 years on from the, the Stop the 70 Tour, which, which the Almanac had uh, such a big role in, in revisiting last year. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the laziest argument in sport, isn't it? You hear it again and again by all the wrong people. Well, you can't disentangle sport and politics. They're intrinsically related. Um, most of the cricket that England just played in India was played at a stadium named after India's current Prime Minister. You know, don't mix sport and politics. <laughs> uh, you also <laughs> pointed towards the Azim Rafiq case at Yorkshire with the same sort of um, expediency shown by those in charge where... This was reported a couple of times. He gave an interview, a written interview. He gave a podcast interview. And it was only when a major cricket publication picked up on this that the third time the story had been circled over publicly, let alone what he may have said privately, that Yorkshire decided they ought to actually address it um, and that it became something that was responded to publicly. Um, Whether or not that was in a lasting way, uh, I suppose, remains to be seen. But you're not necessarily optimistic about that. Well, I'm, I'm more optimistic than I was six months ago, I, I think. I think probably most people who look at how cricket is dealing with things generally, there's an upward curve even if there are blips on, along the way. Yeah, I mean, I thought Yorkshire handled it poorly. As you say, they only really reacted when there was pressure put on them by, by Triginfo, um, who've got a global reach. And and uh, one of the other things I mentioned in that, that section was the, the use of Steve for Chiteshwa Pujara, the nickname mm. that he was given at Yorkshire and how that got gets laughed at in certain pieces of commentary and and how that i reckon five years ago would barely have been sort of noticed 
in terms of the current debate, but but now we're, we're, we're all far more attuned to what that actually means and how hurtful that might be. But the fact that people can still chuckle about it on commentary shows how far we still have to go. Shifting gears to the on-field action, uh, James Anderson and Stuart Broad both reached significant milestones uh, in the summer of 2020 uh, at Manchester and Southampton, respectively. I like that you, uh, again, go back to the Big Brother diary room. That broad spray, I mean, it's funny now, it's nearly a year on, but it was a massive story when he went in there and they got him to essentially get stuck into the selectors for not picking him for that first test. And Jimmy, I suppose, a more subtle version of that uh, after he had that bad first test against Pakistan to reinforce that he wanted to play the next week and, and not be rested. But I suppose where you get to in your piece is that uh, why are we talking about pensioning off two blokes who are still quite outstanding, especially at home? Yeah, they both sort of pulled rank, didn't they, with the, with the media? <laughs> it was very much... Uh... And we all went with it, didn't we? I mean, let's be honest, like, to a person, we, we, I mean, it was, it, was, it was great. It was fantastic. We, we were up for it. It was glorious drama and, you know, it worked at three and... <laughs> Heck, I mean, Broad then gets 29 wickets in five tests at 13 yep. apiece and bowls as well as ever. And Anderson, when he gets a chance, still still looks great. I mean, you know, I, I, I wasn't in, I was slightly tongue-in-cheek. I said, well, let's just pick them both until they sort of drop dead. I mean, I, I, there is an interesting philosoph- philosophical debate there about how you select players because do you pick for the future or do you just pick for the mm. present? England is so damn obsessed with the Gabba in November or December, whenever it's going to be, can we play them both? Look, they're still pretty good, both of them. Um, And Anderson is actually as good as he ever has been. I mean, his performances Mm. in in Gaul and Chennai were sensational. (laughs) This is a 38-year-old in 40-degree heat who's going for one and a half and over. It's taking five and six wickets. Um, So why, it just feels like England sometimes overthink things. Um, You'll be no... Surprised to hear that. that. That's my basic view of English cricket. Then, yes. <laughs> and then uh, Joe Root as well, someone who gets a fair bit of overthinking in his direction. I suppose the way we've thought of him the last few years is always as England test captain and someone who's overburdened and doesn't look like he's having a terribly good time. But Joe Root, the batsman, got to have uh, a moment in the sun, you know, a couple of double hundreds plus his 186 in between times, that um, ridiculous sequence from Sri Lanka to the, the first test in India. Yeah, and the weird thing about that sequence was it was almost like he'd gone away and decided to score some big <laughs> runs. So, okay, was it that straightforward? Had you not thought before about your conversion rate from 50s to 100s? Had you not watched Kane Williamson <laughs> not give it away time and time again? Because that's how he sort of presented it. It's like it's, like it's a sort of a flick switch, and he's, he said, I'm, I can do this. I mean, it helped, I think, that the Sri Lankan attack wasn't great. I mean, Abeldina was a good bowler. The rest weren't up to much but he god he swept beautifully didn't he and and no one else in the England team was scoring big runs in on that Sri Lanka tour so he almost sort of knocked on the door again of the fab four um he fell away a bit in India after that but but so did most players on both teams really so it'll be interesting to see how he goes this summer and in the ashes it's a big year for him yeah, now having passed his 30th birthday as well tends to be when players uh, of his ilk tend to be their most productive. Um, you've given Inadvertently, you've given me a job this year, Lawrence. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, at one point when reflecting on India's extraordinary uh, series in Australia and their rise and rise, and and you used the, the reference point that the last time Australia lost at the Gabba that Bob Hawke was still Prime Minister. Well, I'm, I want to find out the first time that RJL Hawke was mentioned in Wisdom. So, of course, he played for the ACT back in the 50s. So I wonder whether he might have got a mention in one of the, in one of the mid-50s almanacs. But it's a digression. Uh, the main point you were making there is that uh, the adversity that, that India were up against, whether it's sledging, crowd abuse, injuries, an attack with a 1,000 fewer wickets, the all-out 36, the quarantine, the lack of Virat Kohli for the last three test matches and 
in turn, you say it's right there alongside the Calypso summer of 60-61, Australia-India in 2001, the Ashes of 2005. And I like the end bit to uh, the end of certainty, Francis Fukuyama, uh, which I suppose is the sort of thing you, you get taught about at university, but re- reflecting that uh, this is the kind of almost the, the natural end point where India now uh, have the opportunity to uh, to be the defining side of, of the next generation you know, in all three formats. Yeah, and perhaps of all the things you mentioned, perhaps the most astonishing uh, phenomenon was was these these young guys just coming straight in and, and flourishing straight away in one of the most sort of hostile test environments you can get for an Indian cricketer. That, to me, was the worrying sign for the rest of the world. You know, you've got these Indian yeah. B and C team players looking like geniuses and Rishabh Pant batting like in a T20 game and that run chase at the gap. I mean, it was sensational stuff. Um, and really, India, they've got no excuse now not to dominate world cricket for, for time immemorial. Yeah, but there are still those things ahead of them that they haven't done yet. You know, they haven't dominated in England, really. They've, they've never won a series in South Africa. There's the, 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 the talk of their rise has to be backed up by the performances at the top. Yeah, absolutely. There are still things to be done, but you wouldn't back, you wouldn't back against them winning in England this summer. I mean, I know oh, they yeah. won 4-1 last time, but it, it was a kind of mm. weird 4-1. It could have been 3-2 to India. I think England will win, but I wouldn't be surprised if India won. The uh, Wisdom Trophy won close to your heart. This was, uh, you know, a triumph of boring populism in in an era when boring populism is triumphing. Okay, well, I, nobody knows what that trophy name is about, so let's name it after the two most famous players from the two countries, oh, Viv Richards and Ian Botham, people remember them, when when really the connection between them and, and the, the, there wasn't much of a history between them as far as, you know, great cricket matches or great test series went. Um, the proposal that you had for Leary Constantine to be the person that it should have been named after seemed to make sense, uh, I think, to me and Adam. But generally, in, in an age of populism, that's too far away. Oh, we don't remember him. He was from the 1930s, whatever. We need somebody who people... We need the Andrew Flintoff, Kevin Peterson trophy. Yeah, that's basically what happened, isn't it? And also, um, Viv and both of them are still alive so they can be interviewed before mm. each series and give it a bit of a you know I'm not we all know they're great cricketers in their own way but as you say I mean England West Indies was was always a walkover in the in the days of both and he averaged 21 with the bat and 35 with the ball against them he never did much there's already a Sir Vivian Richards trophy played for by was it South Africa and yep uh, West Indies yeah India so that's been going did they know that I doubt it <laughs> I, I just thought it was a, a knee-jerk response to Mike Afton done a column in the Times where Andy Bull had done something in the Guardian and Afton picked it up in the Times and came out with the Richards Botham idea himself within days the ECB had moved on this so they denied that it was anything to do with Atherton but come on guys <laughs> um, and in fact they there was a suggestion briefly that they were going to name last year's trophy that would make that the first Richards Botham trophy but the weird thing was that the, the players were name checking the Wisdom Trophy more than I'd, I'd ever heard them. Um, it felt like something that they both teams really wanted to win, even not knowing that it was going to be the last Wisdom Trophy. And as you say, Leary Constantine just seemed to make much more sense. He, he'd kind of suffered racial abuse in England. He had a, a foot in both camps. He understood the complexities of the Anglo-Caribbean dynamic, if you like. He became the first black peer in the UK. He'd settled in Nelson and Lancashire, played league. There are all kinds of reasons why he, he worked so much better. And of course, he was the the driving force behind the Wisdom Trophy originally in 1963. So there were lots of nice reasons why it should have been him. But yeah, you're right. Not many kids would have heard of him today. So let's call it the, the Richards Botham Trophy. 
I like the bit about men showing leadership on the family front. Uh, you start with Mitchell Stark, of course, leaving South Africa to be there with his wife, Alyssa Healy, for the uh, T20 World Cup final at the MCG on International Women's Day last year. Then that rolls into Joe Root and Kane Williamson, both missing high-profile test matches to be at the birth of children. And then Virat Kohli, I mean, missing three test matches in... I suppose the biggest away series that India play against Australia, uh, and you know what a what a, a diversion uh, that is compared to how it used to be, where family uh, often would have to come second in favour of cricket. Yeah, I mean, Kohli was the, the most amazing one, really, wasn't it? Three three tests of uh, a, a huge a huge series. I mean, you know, I, I, I doffed my captain. I actually worked out quite well for India because Rahani was was a good man for that situation. Hmm. It was weird, actually, because, you know, we talk about changing attitudes. I, I was interviewing Steve Waugh about something around that time, and I asked him about Coley, and he he clearly couldn't quite believe what, what Coley was doing. <laughs> I thought, yeah, there's still, a bit of, there's still a bit of old school, even in the cricketers have retired only sort of, you know, in the last 20 years. So I think it'll, it'll change. Uh, but, yeah, the, 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 you know, the, it did show a certain degree of modern thinking and... It's going to happen more, isn't it, as they play cricket every week of the year? You had a, a poignant little farewell to Ian Bell, the last of the 2005 English cricketers to, to have still been playing first class. Um, there is still a link with Jimmy Anderson from the free-to-air cricket era, although he wasn't in that 05 series, but he did play cricket on free-to-air telly in England and, and then was back again in, in pog form in, in 2021 um, when Channel 4 picked up the India-England series. Yeah, it, it was it was quite a nostalgic moment for sort of English cricket fans of my age, I guess, or who can remember t- the, the, the terrestrial era, which is sort of often described now in sort of dinosaur terms by people who think that the debate is over. And I, I refuse to accept that the, the debate is over. I, I think that Channel 4 got decent figures given that they, they were given it at the last minute and it started at 4am UK time and England were getting trounced for, for much of that series. You know, there's this sort of straw man argument where people say well English cricket will be nowhere without Sky's money and uh, of course you accept the bunny argument but no one in their right mind is saying let's move everything back to terrestrial no one is saying that so let's not argue on, on, on those terms the point is that there needs to be a bit more balance I suggest in the notes that perhaps Channel 4 could get one test a summer in the days when Sky used to do one test a summer when the terrestrial TV had it no one thought that was unreasonable so why shouldn't it be unreasonable the other way around yeah, that's uh, that's an idea that Ali Martin's advanced in the Guardian a number of times as well, isn't it? The idea that there could be some sort of simulcast arrangement in in the same way that their high profile other sporting events get their their day in the sun once a year. Time will tell. Somewhat related, a note for the ECB Reporters Network that I was surprised to read this, but also glad to read it as well. That I suppose at time of printing, the Reporters Network was going to be completely um, gutted, and it was going to be six instead of eighteen uh, reporters uh, making their way covering the counties, and almost emblematic of the times, really, that the counties themselves were going to have to step up and cover their own games in, in, instead of having independent journalists there. And of course, that's a bit of a, a slippery slope. I suppose that the good news, Lawrence, is that there was. A a last-minute compromise found um, the week before the, the championship st- season started last week. So all the games are being covered. But as you say, it's noteworthy that they're in the gun to begin with. Yeah, it's extremely worrying. I don't think the ECB really really realised that the implications. Um, and I, I know we, we like to think we're all very important, don't we, as journalists? And, and we, we sometimes <laughs> we let that get out of, out of hand. But in this instance, I think if there hadn't been, if there'd only been sort of six reporters for, for, for 18 counties essentially then everyone would suffer 
and no one's being held to account. I mean, that's the other side of sports journalism. It's not just supporting the runs and wickets. It's talking to administrators and trying to encourage them to run the game as well as possible. And that, that certainly couldn't have happened in the same way. Uh, you know, that, that's already happening to a degree all over the world. There are in-house you know, reporters and, and, and administrators aren't pushed as much as they should be. The ECB backed down and, and, and I'm glad, but this, even though the note feels perhaps slightly out of date now, maybe it's a marker for future when they try something again like this because yep. they will. There's, you know, wherever there is money to be saved, um, there'll be somebody trying to, to cut those costs. The issue of status, we've spent a fair bit of time on this show complaining about the fact that Packers World Series cricket tests are not given first-class status, considering some of the incredibly trash games that are recognised as first-class matches throughout cricket history. Your campaign that you're leading is is for the 1970s um, rest of the world tests, which were promoted as tests at the time, but were formally unrecognised. And that meant that Alan Jones, uh, the England batsman, the, well, the Welsh batsman, who, uh, who played in those matches and thought he was a test player, was later told that he wasn't. He was recently given England cap number 696, which was a nice moment. So England saying that as far as the ECB was concerned, he was a test player, even if the ICC didn't recognise those matches. Yeah, and, and for me, that it, it was the sentimentality of it, which was which was a nice thing. It showed that I mean, we'd been talking about money and, and the cynicism of administrators and so on, but actually it was a rare moment where they said they looked at the human side of it. I mean, I think we have to accept that those games will never be acknowledged as test matches. I mean, in fairness to the ICC, the old TCCB, as the ECB was mm. then, marketed those games as tests, but they didn't get any permission from the ICC to do it. They persuaded the guys like Sobers to come over. He said, I'm only coming over their test matches. They said, yeah, they are tests. <laughs> they're tests. And so it was played as tests, it was sold as tests. But when the ICC next had an AGM in 1972, they said, we never said they were test matches. So in a sense, they were never sanctioned. But, but regardless of that, they felt like test matches and it was just nice for Alan Jones. I was on the Zoom call where he got his, his, um, his cap and he, it was a surprise and he looked absolutely thrilled and I suppose you can you can take some real credit for the almanac there if not for the fact that you pushed so hard last year to have a conversation around what happened in 1970 it's entirely possible that that presentation never would have taken place who knows actually weirdly I'd interviewed Alan for the in the Daily Mail on the, to mark 50 years of it and the ECB said it was that interview that sort of sparked them to do it so maybe oh, for right. once something, something I wrote in the mail had some impact god knows <laughs> And you finish off the notes section by going back to COVID, but I suppose in a nice way, the strange joys of watching players operate in these unusual times, having to climb into the stands and collect balls after boundaries have been struck, as you say, reassuringly unglamorous like the rest of us. It felt like a a, a nice place to put a full stop on it. Yeah, it felt like the democratisation of, of cricket. They, they, they knew how we feel on most sort of Saturdays and Sundays clambering around in the bushes. Lawrence, that's the end of the, the editor's notes section. So, through the rest of part one, as you say, it's all, all the opinion pieces, and we might just skip through a few of these and encourage people to read them accordingly. The, the first essay is Scraps of Comfort by Duncan Hamilton, who, of course, is one of the most illustrious authors in the game, having won the book prize a number of times. He writes an incredibly long first-person essay, which I haven't been able to read in full yet because it's quite lengthy, but I suppose his scrapbook of COVID cricket and how he went about it. What was the thinking behind getting Duncan to write a piece like this and devoting so much uh, real estate to it at the very front of the book i suppose th- th- that was probably the biggest challenge actually was what is our covid piece going to be at the front of the book i mean i can talk about it in the notes but what will the part one uh, piece on it be and I, and I felt in the end that it had to be something about the 
the emotional impact of cricket disappearing. Um, and we had a timeline in alongside it where we said what had happened with COVID. So we kind of covered the the nuts and bolts of COVID's effect on cricket in that timeline. But then I wanted a kind of elegiac response to it. And, and Duncan does that very well. I mean, he's written two books on, you know, with a cricket, what's happening with the county game and, and the, the, the world's gone to pot. And I, di I didn't want to sort of, we've all gone to the dogs piece, but I wanted a, a reflective piece on what the what the absence of cricket meant. And, and I, I think he pulled it off. There was uh, a... A move towards positivity with the piece on how cricket helped, um, looking at things that players had done that were actually useful uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, people uh, supporting the NHS, um, Ravi Bapara's free chicken shop food, uh, but, you know, a range of good news stories, I suppose, when it could have been, it could have been very much the bad news almanac where, uh, because it was such a grim year, um, I suppose you had to make a conscious choice to look for some areas of positivity yeah and also it showed that these cricketers are that they're, they're nice men and women on the whole <laughs> aren't they 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 um they they have a lot of them have a social conscience in a way that perhaps one or two other sports don't i mean the the, the contrast was often made with football last year when the, the premier league footballers were very reluctant to pay, take a pay cut i know marcus rashford became the star of the of the year and his social conscience the manchester united player but but cricket came out of it quite well, I thought, and I, and I did want to celebrate that. People running marathons in their back garden and, yes, the chicken shop and all kinds of gestures made. Sam Billings offering old to help old ladies do their shopping in Canterbury. <laughs> I mean, there are any number of... I could have, that, that, that section could have been three pages, not one, but it was nice to reflect it. Yeah, it was quite a powerful statement, I thought, actually, all these cricketers who are going through an awful lot, which includes Jack Leach. A lot's been said about Jack Leach and the, his trials and tribulations inside the bubble, not playing for 60 days, being the understudy, of course, having been shielding earlier in the year due to Crohn's disease. But you got him to write about it himself. Yeah, well, I thought because of the, the Crohn's disease, he was a, uh, say, a natural. But he, he, his perspective, I thought, would have been interesting because there would have been that extra element of concern, probably. I mean, he, he did say he got a he got a message, a text message from the government early on in the piece, saying that he was at risk, and he, you know, the, the heart rate went up a bit. And but once he got used to the idea that he was going to be quite well looked after in that bubble, you know, he probably it was as safe as anyone as a result because he was in the unburstable ECB bubble. So there was no way he was he was catching anything. But then there was the mental strain of not playing a, a single match apart from a Joss Butler 11, VNO and Morgan 11, whatever it was he played in a 20-over smash. I, I can't remember what it was, but he had to deal with the the strains of, of, of not getting out there at all and, and, and really being stuck in that bubble. And he, he dealt with it with good grace, as you expect. He's a lovely guy and he... And he and he, I think he came out of it mentally tougher in the end. The end of the Colpac era was a particularly significant one, something that happened in 2020 that wasn't COVID-related, you know, with the political repercussions of Brexit, meaning that um, Colpac players couldn't play as, as local, as home players for county teams anymore. And you had Dan Gallen writing the South African view of things, Alan Gardner writing the English view of things. Um, this felt like a really significant sort of end of an era in that respect. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, there was a game, I think Alan mentions it in his piece, 2008, Northampton should be Leicestershire at Grace Road. And I think there were 13 non-England qualified players out of the 22 and sort of nine of them were South Africans. Um, mm. And they, he talked to Paul Nixon, who who was uh, playing at the time. He said, yeah, we probably did over-egg the pudding, which was a nice <laughs> way of putting it. And it, that, that's something, I mean, Northampton were known for a while as the steel box, not the steel bat. 
Sparks, which is their usual nickname. <laughs> it's painful for me as a as a fan, but it it was going that way. And so so yeah, both Alan and Dan reflect on what Colpack meant to the two different countries, and and Dan comes down on the sort of the they'll be they'll always be branded with a scarlet K that lots of people will regard these guys as mercenaries who decided that for, for whatever reason they couldn't make it in South Africa and that's obviously more complex over there and decided to cash in in England and now of course the, 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 there's a bit of a trickle back in the other direction and that's good isn't it that's good for South African cricket yeah and the way that Dan was able to articulate that I mean whilst we think about it as being an economic decision a lot of the guys that came out here it was all tied into racial politics and quotas and all the rest of it so it's important terrain to deal with at the end of that era jeff already mentioned the patrick kidd piece about cricket stopping play but there's also one related to it by stephen lynch or immediately following it about the spanish flu wisdoms i went through this i think i might have called you last year and said something similar that i wanted to write about this because i was trying to find in wisdom around 1919 1920 references to spanish flu uh, when preparing a piece and there's kind of nothing there a couple of mentions of influenza but it's it's remarkable to think a century on that the entire book's devoted to it but the last pandemic of this size and scale i suppose which did have a massive effect on cricket just didn't really feature in the almanac back then yeah, it was bizarre, actually. It's one of the, the things we discussed this year in the obituaries is, are we going to mention, if someone dies of COVID, are we going to mention that? Because usually our rule of thumb is, if they're, let's say, of an age where you wouldn't be surprised if they died, we don't give the the, the reason for them dying. But if they're 50 or below, we do say that they were knocked over by a bus or died of cancer or whatever. But for COVID, I thought we've got to do this because the wisdom of the, the time you mentioned, 1919, 1920, were, were pretty poor about saying who died of the Spanish flu. There were occasional references to influenza. We think about 20 of those years. It was because it was 1918 to 20 was the global pandemic. But it was almost like the, the relief at the end of the First World War had overshadowed everything else. And they didn't really want to get into the the, the more bad news about the, the, the Spanish <laughs> flu pandemic. 228,000, they reckon, died in the UK. So that's a lot more than have currently died of, of COVID. Uh, but it was kind of not touched upon greatly and, and many more many more millions died around the world it could be a hundred million they think died around the world and we're what are we at at the moment three or four million globally mm, with COVID. Mm. so completely different different kettle of fish but perhaps and i i, I wanted to make sure that this wisdom uh, uh placated future historians i didn't want them looking through this wisdom and going why can't we see what effect COVID had on on cricketers so that that was one of part of my thinking in the midst of all of that, you, as you mentioned earlier, you had to find the way to name the Wisdom Five Cricketers of the Year, the thing that you have to explain to everybody every year, that it's about uh, players who had performances during the English season only and it can't include anyone who's been named before. So that's th- hopefully prevents all the people who get mad at uh, the decisions that were made. The two local players who, who had significant summers particularly in the test team being Zach Crawley uh, and Dom Sibley. Sibley was written about by Rob Smythe, Zach Crawley by Tim Delisle. Uh, two of the visiting players, Jason Holder who was written up by George Daybell and Mohammad Rizwan by Osman Samiuddin. And then the fifth one, the one that I'm sure most people will be so delighted to, to see get in there, Darren Stevens gets a gong um, in his mid-40s, written up by Mark Pennell as one of the Wisdom Five. Yeah, finally, finally. I, I reckon since I've been doing this job, I've, I've had more emails about why haven't you named Darren Stevens <laughs> than any other cricket in the world. It is astonishing. <laughs> and I'm not saying I've caved into pressure, but... I thought he deserved it last year. He took he took twenty nine wickets at fifteen for Kent at the age of forty four. God's sake, um, three five wicket hauls. 
And he just cemented his weird status as as this sort of wicket-taking machine for a guy who, when he was at Leicestershire, his first county, barely took a wicket. It's astonishing. Average 60 or something with the ball. He goes to Kent and he becomes this destroyer of worlds. <laughs> so I was really happy to give it to him. Actually, he got it. He started this season with 100 against Northampton in the Championship, which I saw someone write that he'd now scored first-class 100s in four different decades. <laughs> I love that. I mean, in a way, I suppose Crawley and, and Sibley and, and Jason Holder picked themselves. Mohamed Rizvan was a, a pretty a pretty crafty pick in many respects because since the English summer's concluded, he's gone on to achieve great things for Pakistan. And yeah, Darren Stevens, I was wondering your thought process on that. Uh, to an extent, was it kind of like a lifetime achievement award like when you were going through it? Because you could have easily given it to, say, Craig Overton, who, who dominated last year during the Bob Willis Trophy. And I think he was the PCA player of the year in that competition. But you went down the path of Stevens. Was it, to an extent, acknowledging the, the extraordinary body of work he's built up at Kent? Yeah, to a degree. I think it's one of those ones where all things being equal, you go with the guy who probably won't, well, he won't get another chance, at least. Stevens may be going at age of 63 and will go, oh, we should have chosen him when he was 58 and he had that great summer. <laughs> but you, you give it to that guy and, yes, and, 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 and a body of work. But also I thought standing alone, a 44, you have to take into account his age, is a 44-year-old taking 29 wickets at 15. It's not a young England hopeful taking 30 wickets at 18 or whatever Overton took it's a 44 year old mm. and I think um, it's not just his body of work but it's the physical remarkability of what he did I like it I like it so that's the Wisdom 5 and a series of essays that follow uh, in relation to Black Lives Matter I like that you kind of got Ebony to really spell it out over a few thousand words in, including um the extraordinary ACE program uh, that we've had Ebony on the show a couple of times to discuss visionary initiative and kind of taking it to the ECB in keeping with the spirit of your editor's notes uh, about the fact that they can't sort of take their foot off the pedal here. This isn't sort of a one-year commitment and she's going to hold them to account and I like that. Yeah, and I mean, it was interesting that piece because she did not want to uh, just slam administrators. She, she'd, done, she'd also done her personal catharsis. She didn't want to cry again about the treatment she'd undergone she wanted to move forward from a psychological perspective for her own mental health and i uh, i got that so let's make this a let's make this how we move forward piece at the same time there there are going to be that's going to involve criticism of the of the boards um but i think i I think all her criticism is fair she makes some good points she she was angry about taking a knee she feels angry about bame as a an acronym she says it's not not a helpful acronym at all for people who who aren't white, essentially. <laughs> They're all being lumped together in one group. And she, she regards that as a, as a sort of a small symptom of, of the problem. She's from Lambeth in South London, where there's a, there's a big African-Caribbean community. Uh, she reckons that there are about 33,000 10 to 19-year-old black kids uh, and that they're not being used. Surrey hasn't reflected that demographic at all, and that is, that is a scandal. And in fairness to Surrey, they are, you know, they're pretty forward thinking when she took this to them they, they they took it on board and they they will move in the right direction but her energy is is sensational <laughs> she 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 is a force of nature and a, and a, and a great thing for, for english cricket yeah she really is and and i like the way that that's in there's an insert of all the players who who spoke openly about racism in cricket last year 
you use their words. I mean, there's no sort of uh, no no needing to colour it in when the the quotes are so strong. From we already talked about Azim Rafiq, but Keith Barker, Adil Rashid, Jofra Archer, Michael Carberry, Mo and Ali, Devon Malcolm. The list the list goes on really. And then following yeah. that by in terms of using their own words, Michael Holding. It was an edited extract of what he said to Sky. I mean, it doesn't get really any more eloquent than what he said that day. So your decision was instead of getting him to write about it again, pull together and assemble the words he said that day. Yeah, I mean, because that morning we, we already spoke about was so powerful, it, it just seemed to make sense to record those words forevermore in wisdom. We didn't need to do anything more than that. Um, and and it, I suppose it looks it looks like a lazy piece of editing, doesn't it? But actually, no, <laughs> you've got it there in wisdom now. If people talk about that holding uh, monologue, well, there it is in black and white, um, as it were. And you don't need to go searching for it online. It's there on the page and it, it's, it speaks for itself. The leading cricketers of the year, as distinct from the five cricketers of the year, uh, Beth Mooney and Ben Stokes got the gongs. Uh, Ralph Nicholson and Dean Wilson wrote those two up. Yeah, Beth, uh, the, with the Women's Award, you, you think, is it which of Perry mm. or Lanning is it going to be? And then you look and then you actually, Beth Mooney, was the star? You know, she was the star of the T Twenty World Cup. Um, that innings in the final was was brilliant in front of eighty six thousand at the MCG, and then she's the star, even though her team didn't win, of, of of the of the women's big bash, and 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 frightening for the rest of the women's game really that she can overtake Lanning and Perry in that sort of pecking order. They, you know, they've got so many world class players, haven't they? We were absolutely chuffed as well reading through that because, I mean, she's been one of our. I mean, I think we were Jeff banging on about Beth Mooney five or six years ago when she was well before national selection. To think that she would make the Australian team, not as a wicketkeeper, but as a as a batter alone, and now reach these heights and now get recognised uh, in wisdom as the leading player in the world. It's it's a mighty achievement given where she was at the start of that journey compared to where she is now. It's yeah. pretty cool, as you say. I mean, you look through it. There's Perry last year, Mandana before that. But Dali Raj before that, a couple of Lannings, another Perry, and here's Beth Mooney, uh, the plucky Queenslander. Yeah, and it, and it's great that, that you know that we're getting more names. You know, sometimes you you worry that the women's game is a bit top heavy, but we we need it to sort of spread out. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Stokes, and Stokes was a sort of an interesting one because that in a in a way there was sort of I mean there was men's cricket, but there was there was less men's cricket in, in the sense there was no global tournament to you to get stuck into to choose the guy. But Stokes still did pretty well, didn't he? Average 58 with the bat and 18 with the ball. And he was, you know, he played those two innings against West Indies at Manchester where he grinds out 170 and then he smashes 70 opening off 50 balls to set up that win. And then he takes wickets and he runs to the boundary to stop. Actually, did they get four runs in the end? I can't remember. But anyway, he, he, was, <laughs> he, was, he was everywhere. And then he's got the personal... Uh, backdrop his his dad's um ailing and finally dies in december and he has to leave the pakistan series early so it was, it was a poignant performance as well and of course we forget we, this reflects the calendar year and he began the year with one of his tour de forces in cape town um mm-hmm. game looked like it was heading for a draw and he grabs the ball and says i'll do it so he's a, he was a force of nature and i couldn't see who who had really done enough apart from him, to oust him from that position. You know, Coley hadn't had a great year. There was no one else in the men's game across the calendar year, across the formats, who I felt had done enough to knock Stokes off the perch, but people may disagree. It's like a world championship wrestling belt. Once, you, once you're wearing it, you've got to be defeated, and I suppose <laughs> he's back-to-back champion now. And Virat Kohli won it three years before him, which means that it looks odd that Steve Smith's never there, but that's on account yeah. of the fact that he's never been able to knock off um, uh, Coley in that in that era when they were one and two. And 
and now it's Ben Stokes. I think my favourite new section of the book this year, Lawrence, was the Hugh Chevalier, your co-editor, has these three photos of the 1950s. Now, I'm familiar with all three photos, but seeing them presented this way and knowing it's going to be a section going forward and a way to acknowledge the beautiful photos that were taken and powerful photos that were taken in our game before Wisden started recognising a photo of the year in, in 2011 or whatever it was. So this is a clever new initiative. Yeah, and actually this is one of those ideas that was discussed when we were worried there was going to be no cricket. Um, but then we liked it and we thought we'd stick with it anyway. And we get Patrick Eager, the, the sort of doyen of, of cricket photography, to, to give Hugh his reasons for why he chose the three picks and you know they, they're all social histories aren't they it's sort of it's the, it's the three w's relaxing on the outfield and surprisingly few pictures of all three of them exist actually and this was a lovely one just their, their humanity sort of speaking to the the lens there are young boys climbing up lampposts to get a glimpse of the the ashes test at the oval in 53 and then there's compton and edrich walking off the oval after england have won sneaked a 1-0 win and being thronged in the outfield and you just study the study the crowd there are bowler hats there are sort of old policemen there are kids in school uniform it's, it's just there's so much going on in the picture that tells you so much about England at that time the competitions are you know they're a way to reach out to the broader uh, cricket community get people involved who may not have been involved before necessarily the wisdom writing competition Philip Hardman uh, won that and then the photo of 2020 uh, a, a young up-and-comer by the name of Stephen Waugh managed to to take that gong this year. So nice of you to reach out beyond the establishment. <laughs> yeah, apparently he likes taking a photo. I've not, I've not heard it. Um, but he was no, was not. Yeah, it was a picture of the, there's a, some desert cricket in in Rajasthan. I mean, he you know he's lucky enough to go on a little tour of India and, and take some snaps. And he's um, and I, I interviewed him about it for, for Wisdom Cricket Monthly and. I, I, actually, I always love speaking to cricketers about stuff outside cricket because you, you find out what kind of guys they are, really, in a way that sometimes he, cricket doesn't always reveal or they, they're, they're forced to put to wear masks and so on. And the little boy in it came out and it, and it, it, was, it was quite heartwarming. Really. Uh, the only essay that you devote uh, any space in, in the front half of the book in terms of retirement is MS Daney, which almost speaks for itself given the uh, given the, the footprint that he leaves on the game. There's also an essay from you, Lawrence, where you get a chance to, to flex some muscle uh, on 50 years of the one-day international, often the maligned format, really, but you go back and look at the first one in January 1971 and then go back decade by decade using sort of one player to reflect how the game was played almost in their image. Yeah, we, we, we did think, should we choose the five greatest ODI cricketers of all time? I thought that, that's impossible because you're comparing different eras when, you know, are you honestly telling me that Viv Richards doesn't get in because his strike rate was 89? You know, I'm sorry, but hmm. you had to kind of... So we thought it was probably fairer to do it by decade. And actually, you end up with a sort of a bit of a history of one-day cricket then as well because you go with Viv Richards in the 70s or West Indies win the first two World Cups. Kapil Dev in the 80s, India famously went 83, and he catches Viv at Lords over his shoulder famously. So there's a nice mm. handling of the bat in there. Tendulkar in the 90s, who else? Uh, Murali, a spin bowler in the 2000s when T20s coming into play, and you'd think, who'd want to be a spinner? But actually, Murali holds it together and and still goes at sort of three or four and over. Uh, and then Virat Kohli, the greatest chaser in the history of, of white ball cricket in the, the last decade. So, yeah, we end up with three Indians uh, a West Indian and, and and a Sri Lankan. The only complaint you might have, and you two might well have, is that there is no Australian, and they've won five World Cups. <laughs> and I hear you. I hear you in advance. Uh, but I just each decade, I was looking at it, going. I mean, Gilchrist came very close to it. Was Gil, Gilchrist v Murali was incredibly close. 
But I thought what Gilchrist did brilliantly was was he was an amazing pinch hitter. But that had sort of been done before by others, so he wasn't re- he wasn't inventing a new genre there. Was I felt Murali was perhaps flying the flag for an entire species by himself. But again, it's a debate. I think they'll survive. I think they'll be okay with their five World Cups, yeah, Lawrence. <laughs> Something that happened last year, which I don't think got enough attention. So I'm glad that um, Derek Pringle was invited to write an essay about the end of first-class university cricket. Uh, all academic now, it's titled. Uh, and uh, when yeah, when Cambridge defeated Oxford at Fenners last year, kind of that was that. And I suppose with everything else that was going on, um, the uh, relegation of the MCC used to no longer be considered first-class wasn't sort of front and centre. But yeah, uh, Derek Pringle, in terms of modern players, he, he'd be the one that's most well-known for what he did uh, for his university, making the test team while he was still at Cambridge and playing so many games there. Um, uh, and yeah, I suppose... Uh, it is the end of an era because when you look back at the 20th century especially, what the universities did, uh, especially Oxford and Cambridge, of course, were a significant part of the English summer. Yeah, and, you know, it's one of those pieces where you think, are we going to look a bit elitist here, sort of bigging up Oxford and Cambridge? And yeah, it probably does, but we are simply reflecting <laughs> quite a, th- a big strand of English cricket history. Um, I just made a note here, there were... Oxford produced 13 England captains and eight captains for other test teams. Cambridge produced 21 England captains and seven captains for other test teams. That's a, that's a massive contribution. Yeah. I'm not saying they learned all their cricket in Oxford and Cambridge, but they went through the system there. Uh, and they they got a chance to play first-class cricket and to get noticed. And I mean, Pringle himself averaged something like 50 with a bat and 25 with the ball in first-class cricket for Cambridge on very flat pitches, uh, which might explain the batting, but not necessarily the bowling. <laughs> And there are there some great stories there. I mean, Weeks, Everton Weeks, who died last year, there was a game in his obit at Fenners, West Indies v Cambridge at Fenners in 1950, I guess. Cambridge bat first and score 594 for four against West Indies. Cambridge University, a bunch of students. And then West Indies come out and get 730 for three. And Weeks is 300 <laughs> not out by the end. and could have kept going. I mean, imagine where that innings might have gone if they kept going. It would have been sort of 1,500 all out or something. <laughs> so there are some good stories going back there. And, and the degree to which Oxford and Cambridge kind of feathered English cricket's nest and the reliance on this kind of officer class as captain is an interesting his- historical take on English cricket in its own right and Pringle Pringle does it nicely. You also had a look at the history of uh, another publication, 100 Years of the Cricketer magazine, which James Coyne wrote, and you got quite a coup because you got Garfield Sobers to write a piece. You know, you just mentioned the recent death of Everton Weeks, the last of the three Ws, the three great Bajan cricketers um, to, to die, and, and Sir Garfield Sobers gave his, his view on them and what they had achieved. Yeah, and it's a lovely start to the piece where he remembers as a young boy listening. Uh, well, England, West Indies were in England for their famous 1950 tour, you know, Ramadan and Valentine, those two little pals of mine, and, and so on. They win at Lords. And he's going to school in the mornings and he can hear his neighbours listening on the radio and he's peeking in through the windows so he can he can hear what's going on. And then, of course, he's, he makes his test debut with them all against a few years later uh, against England at, uh, at Kingston. And, he, and he's told, he gets the news while he's, playing he's 17 he's playing street cricket with his mates and someone runs over and says you've got to get to jamaica you, you, you've been selected for a test match against west indies like you better get on the plane then i thought what a lovely little sort of snapshot of, of life and he's picked as a number nine to bowl left arm spin i mean it's it's incredible development he gets four wickets but hutton gets a double hundred and england win and square the series two all and then he moves up the order and then two years later he scores 365 not out uh, against pakistan <laughs> 
It's a nice touch that immediately following that on the front of part two, there's a lovely portrait of uh, Everton Weeks to begin uh, the review section. Uh, to skip through a few of these, uh, Emma John was your book reviewer this year, always a very important role. Of course, the, the, the gong that Jeff won a couple of years ago. And Daniel Melamed uh, won the prize this year for This Is Cricket in the Spirit of the Game. And it was, as I understand, having not read the book based on Emma's uh, write-up, uh, essentially a, a series of photographs, which... Um, I suppose is unusual given what we normally expect from the Wisdom Book of the Year. Yeah, and I, perhaps this isn't the time to admit I've not actually seen the book yet, but I trust Emma's judgment. Uh, I mean, her, her point was that, it, yeah, it's, it's essentially a, coffee, a beautiful coffee table book of, of photos of cricket down the years. And um, she said in last last year of all years, it was an important sort of visual aid and a reminder of, of the game we were missing. And she said, she said she felt quite emotional browsing through it. So I thought it was a intelligent choice for a different kind of year and i won't indulge too much in the uh, in the media section written by richard hobson but as always there's a debate around the the, the tms cast and, and stuff like that and there's a nice bit there about the quarantine cup it includes my call of the final which is pretty nice um and bbc returning to tv broadcasting for the first time since 1999 of course a lot of emphasis on what sky were able to achieve around black lives matter as well the podcast section by james gingell's inside of that which includes more kind words about uh, what we're doing here on the final word which is lovely and other projects that we've been involved in uh, through the course of 2020 and social media which rounds out that section via Dave Tickner and that had to include a, a big emphasis on Mark Church's garden cricket I mean you're looking at quarantine cup you're looking at all the different things that we're able to do documentaries on podcasts and so on and then Mark Church who, who prevailed throughout the lockdown period playing cricket with his garden furniture yeah madman complete madman and, and, and great copy for Dave his obvious way into to the piece I mean I think Church played out entire international series with his sort of deck chair and barbecue stand or something remarkable effort really but rather him than me but but good on him and then we've got Brian Carpenter was looking after the blogs. He doesn't say it in as many words, but Neil Manthorpe, the best in the business as usual. Uh, Jack Chantry was doing the county retirements. You gave a special section for Shieldberry, former editor of the Wisden Almanac, who wrote about Ian Bell, of course, uh, as Jeff pointed to before. The last link back to 2005. I love all the, the quirky bits as we get through this. You know, Cricket and the law. The, the, there's a feature there on the Bournemouth man who was fined £10,000 after faking his MCC membership card in the pavilion. Uh, and there's a great little subheading here. England player records 100, which refers to when Ben Duckett lost his licence for driving at 106 miles per hour. So you get to, uh, and your team, of course, get to have some fun with these subheadings as we work our way through the book. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of humorous side to wisdom is quite important. I mean, I think Matthew Engel probably takes credit for that as the editor who, who made wisdom um, uh, sort of laugh at itself a bit more. So always plenty of that going on in cricket we're going to hit up Fraser Stewart again in a couple of weeks to keep pushing him on the, the inconsistency of the application of waist high no balls but there he is this time talking about when Joe Root withdrew his declaration against South Africa all the way back in January 2020 before the pandemic it feels like a, a million years ago having that reference point there a far more important section I suppose uh, in relation to the conversations we've had in the last two years Lawrence is the environment part of the book you introduced back in 2019 with Tanya Aldred and interesting how she's come at this uh, around the idea of what we've become more efficient with through COVID, especially with flying people around. I mean, cricket can be a crazy sport with how much we fly around and maybe some of the lessons that we've learned through 2020 can be applied in the future to make sure our game's more environmentally sustainable. 
Yeah, I mean, she she goes big on the air miles, which was always a subject she was going to address at some point. Um, and and last year, the, the the fires in Australia kind of knocked that off the uh, off the, the headline. But actually, she she had to go for it this year, and uh, because the flying was so down, the, the question is, will will cricket adapt? I'm I'm not entirely confident it will. Um, that boards are just so frightened about you know earning money to stay alive that I don't think they're going to going to suddenly sort of start flying fewer people around i mean one of the obvious solutions you'd have thought would be to organize tours in in a more sort of eco-friendly way so that you're not zigzagging across india five times in a tour you you go in a a loop or you go for the shortest journey each time but (laughs) do we honestly think that bcci give two hoots about that all you can do is just is, (laughs) is keep the pressure on you asked Gideon Haig to write about the, the test documentary on Amazon, which was noteworthy given, I think, that this time last year, um, Lawrence, that's what we were all doing. We were all watching that. So Gideon was the right man for that commission. And then we get to the obituaries uh, passage, which was chunkier than it might otherwise have been, uh, partially informed by COVID-19. So there's the, the greats of the game, like John Edrich, who, who, of course, passed away on Christmas Eve. But also, I like the fact that Scott Borthwick's grandmother gets a mention there as well, Margaret or Nana, who was known for, among other things, the pies she would deliver to the press box. So I was just kind of curious about the approach you apply to that, like who gets a, who gets a wisdom obituary? And, and, and it's a massive, massive section. How do you pull it together? Yeah, it is massive. I, mean, I reckon there were about 16 people we we knew had died of COVID in the section. There, there may have been more, of course, and there may be one or two we missed. Um, how do you pull it together? You just keep an eye out. <laughs> we have we have a sort of network of spies around the world who, who will help us out. Um, I mean, a guy called Warwick Franks in Australia helps us out with some of the, the Aussie obits, Gulu Ezekiel in India. Um, there, there, are, there are people all over the place. Um, but you do have to keep your eyes peeled and... Uh, sometimes the danger actually can be you write too much. You start to delve into some of these people's lives and you realise how rich they were, especially from the wartime era. You know, we'll soon reach a point where no one fought in the Second World War anymore and maybe the Oberts mm. will feel a bit more bland because no one was sort of skiing down a mountain in Norway, escaping from the Nazis and then taking five for 10 against Leicestershire <laughs> a week later. Um, we need more of those stories. But uh, what you, 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 you judge it on its merit. I mean... Last year did feel like a biggish year. I mean, as you, you mentioned there at the end, um, you know, John Edrich and, and then Robin Jackman died yep. on Christmas Day. Someone like David Capel, uh, Dean Jones, guys who go before their time, you feel like they need a big, they need a big hit. They deserve it. This is they've gone well before we expected. So you just judge each one on its merits. That sounds like a boring test batsman's answer, but that's how, that's how you do it. Yeah, the photo of Dean Jones on Boxing Day at the MCG batting in his baggy green was especially yeah. powerful. Uh, then w- once we get beyond that, we, we're kind of the, the almanac moves into its familiar form. English international cricket, English domestic cricket, overseas cricket, always worth reading Dan Bredig's piece on Australia. Likewise, Jeff's reports on the Australia-India series, the epic that played out through December and January. Franchise cricket, T20 cricket, Kyron Pollard is the T20 leading player in the world, according to Tim Wigmore, who wrote up that piece. Women's cricket with Mel Farrell at the front writing the international summary then we're into the registers records and last but not least part nine one of my faves the almanac the actual almanac where we where we get to the the page i suppose we're up to page 1200 before we arrive at that uh, lawrence and um this year in terms of errors that have been sent through to you there is a belter there is one from 1923 the edition where cv leaf it was said that his highest score for Forest School in 1922 was 277. And this year you've received correspondence saying it was actually 27. So some 98 years later, 
you get to correct the record. What a joy. Yeah. So what? We added 250 runs to his highest. <laughs> you know, these things happen. Um, I, I, he must have had a, a great time for the rest of his life because he'd have said, I scored 277. No, you didn't. You scored two. Look it up in wisdom, mate. <laughs> I, never, I don't remember the day that panning out that way, I have to admit, but fair enough. No, so those are great moments. We're not so keen on errors from the previous year's edition um, because, you know, that's my fault. Uh, but we, we quite like ones from, from 1923 or what have I got here? 19... 1943, Wisdom 1943, the match between Surrey Home Guard and Sussex Home Guard appears to have taken place on August the 17th, 1942, not August the 18th. I mean, who on earth that? And why do they feel the need to write in? But Errata is a, is a great page. As long as it has passed the statute of limitations, then you want to know about it, as long as you can take no responsibility for it. Also, I'm surprised that nobody pointed out um, that it was interesting that uh, Mr. Leaf was playing for the Forest School. <laughs> and then we get to the very end, which is the uh, the index of unusual occurrences, which is the final page of the book, one thousand two hundred and forty eight pages later. You go back to a, a note that on page seven seventy nine, burglar stop play. On page six seventy six, kite stop play, and. Last but not least, page 681, world's most famous cricketer mangled by President Trump. It felt like you made a point of uh, putting that right at the very end of the book, Lawrence. Yeah, it worked alphabetically, but yes, we did want to round it off with um, bid farewell to the the great man. Um, What did he say? Virat Virat Kohli. Virat Kohli and (laughs) Suchin Tondulkar. (laughs) It was magnificent, wasn't it? And in the stadium next to... he was. I think Narendra Modi was on stage, wasn't he, in the stadium that was then shortly named after him. So um, two two great men. Don't mix politics and sport, Lawrence. Don't mix politics and sport. So, Big deep breath. That is the Wizard Almanac of 2021, Lawrence. Again, it's it's an astonishing piece of work produced in the toughest of circumstances given everything else that was going on last year, everybody working remotely, of course, and all the rest of it. Congratulations on the achievement. It's such a Brilliant read. You can access all of our offer codes for the Wisdom Almanac in the show notes, which will pop down there. So you get a 30% discount on the pre-order if you're in Australia or the US, or if you can become a subscriber in the UK. And I think you get the book for 25 quid instead of 55, something like that. It's a fantastic deal. Lawrence, you're a wonderful guest, a great supporter of ours. Uh, Thanks for being part of what we do here on The Final Word. Thanks for having me. This is each year. This is my toughest wisdom interview. Uh, so I always get an early night and stay off the grog, and 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 it's been as as fun as it ever <laughs> always is. So thank you. I did want to ask you as a postscript. Um, you also managed to have a baby daughter during the last year while producing <laughs> this book, um, which which felt like the greater achievement, or or uh, you know the, the 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 bigger weight off your mind once it was done. <laughs> Well, the baby daughter was, was was created, shall we say, before the pandemic kicked in. So I can't I can't sort of claim all the credit for that. But yeah, um, she kept my feet on the ground. She she showed. I sound like a cricketer. She she put everything into perspective for me, and um, uh, she gets a mention. So she her her wisdom career starts this year in the preface. Winnie's wisdom collection now extends to two. I can hear her in the background. She's sick today, home from nursery, so I'm going to go and give her a cuddle and end our interview here. But I've now got the 2020 and 2021 editions for her collecting from birth, which is the, the right way to do it. You can too. All that's in the show notes. And again, thanks to Lawrence Booth. Great stuff. Take care, guys. 
Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, and thank you for uh, that long span of his time, a decent percentage of his life, uh, the the wisdom of editors' almanac. Yeah, no, the editor of wisdom almanac, Lawrence, open inverted commas, photo, close inverted commas, booth. Uh, he's done it again. What greater incentive to buy the book either? Uh, the fact that we've got it all in the show notes, discount, the fact that we're working with the Almanac commercially at the moment, editorially talking to the boss of the bloody thing. Go get yourself a copy. It is, uh, I've, I've got two uh, here at the moment in hard copy, which feels very special to have it in the hand. But um, it's also um, the, the longer, wi- the, the, sorry, what do they call it? The Shorter Wisdom, which is an ebook. There's the digital mm-hmm. edition. There's a number of ways you can get the almanac and enjoy some of the best cricket writing in the world. And also, uh, Wisdom is an anagram for widens, if that's ever useful to you, you know. So that, you know, if, I, I don't know why. I'm just, just offering that up. That's a bonus. That's for free. You don't even need to buy the book to get that, but you can buy the book very cheaply. You know, look in our recent show notes. We talked about Zolio today, but we'll put the um, info in the show notes for this as well to get yourself a discount copy of the book. Now, sing us a song, You're the Bannerman. A segment that we like to come to at the end of shows at the moment, uh, looking all the way back to the very first test match in 1877, in which Charles Bannerman made a record 67.35% of his team's score. To be fair, everything that happened in that test match was a record because they hadn't played test matches before, but it remains a record to this day a record that has stood the test of time. And so we like to look at innings, not in test cricket necessarily, but anywhere in cricket that have surpassed the Bannermanian threshold. And Adam, you have been looking through these this week. I have. And the longer we do this segment, and we're going to keep it going for a while yet because we get some great emails through and messages on the Patreon page, it reinforces to me how freakish that it's never been broken in test cricket. Because it's happened quite a bit at first class level and happens all the time in recreational cricket. But Charles Bannerman stands head and shoulders above the rest on this measure. So I've got a, got a beauty this week from Harold Combe, uh, who is sent through, uh, would it be Harold Combe, the way it's spelt there, Jeff? How would you go? With, how I would think you so. Harold Combe. I think Combe. so, yeah. I'd, I'd, go, I'd go like a Peter Coombe, uh, the great Australian children's songwriter of the 80s, um, you know, Orange Juice, Belly Flop in a Pizza, etc. but take out one O and so make the, the long double O sound into a single O sound. Uh, apparently the Wiggles said that Peter Coombe, uh, he, he walked that they might run. He, he paved the road for them to follow. So, yeah, thank you, Peter. All right. So Howard uh, brought to my attention uh, an innings that is a great bannerman, a 95%er, a 95%er, perhaps what? the biggest number we've seen so far. And it's from one of the greatest, well, most well-known players of all time, perhaps not one of the greatest of all time, but had a great career over a very long period of time, Basil de Oliveira. Now, this goes back to when he was playing in South Africa in the non-whites competitions that they had in the segregated country as it was back then. And this is uh, ultimately drove me back to his Guardian obituary, which explains an innings where he made 225 out of 237 with 16 sixes. So... In the obituary, when he passed away in 2011, it reads from an early 16 age... 16 sixes? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I, I mean, so. just my brain was expecting you to say 16 fours because you, you no. generally do the fours first followed by the sixes. I was like, 16 fours and how many sixes? I was like, wait, <laughs> you just said 16 sixes. Yeah, I, I really did. So 
Okay. So he was considered to be the best cricketer in the non-white leagues at the time in South Africa, unsurprisingly. And then he played this innings at age 21. He hit seven sixes and one four in one eight ball over. <laughs> And he ended up <laughs> really choked. Oh no, sorry, I, I, I'm actually Just conflating. Couldn't... I'm conflating two innings. That, that when he's 21, he did okay. that where he hit seven sixes and a four. When he was 23, right. he made this two two five in 75 minutes. Mark Nicholas also writes about this in a long form piece that he wrote about oh, Dolly nice. uh, in uh, in cricket on Crick Info rather. I'd love to learn more about it, but I, I can't locate the scorecard. But yes, it's been noted in a number of places after how I brought it to my attention. But a seventy five minute innings where De Oliveira made two two five out of two three seven ninety five percent with sixteen sixes. I mean, it, it, it that's better it, than three runs a minute. It's How many people have gone at better than three runs a minute? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. So uh, thank you, Howard, for bringing that to my attention. And we've got another stonking Bannerman uh, on uh, Storytime, which we will be recording later in the week for this Saturday, Jeff. Do you? Do I know anything about this? Do I, have I been if you've, If you've this? looked through the shared document, you, you may have seen it. I, I popped it in last night when we're doing do our research. You might have a look at it on Saturday morning okay. before we record or something. I like to be surprised by these <laughs> things, you know. I, I like to make sure that I come to it fresh um, so that so that you can amaze me anew. So I will look forward to that. Story time. That's the show we do on the weekends where we get deeper into cricket history, um, even though we've spent a fair bit of time on it today. Uh, I think that's it for it today is. for us. That has been the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, uh, thank you to Lawrence Booth once again. Thanks to CBUS Superannuation who helped support the show. Uh, thank you to the Zolio, Z-O-L-E-O dot com. Uh, Dave Collins edits the podcast. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have other shows that you may also be interested in checking out if you like things like books and uh, American football and comedy and other things uh, that, that that you may also enjoy. You're a well-rounded individual. Life's not all about cricket. It's not for us either. Uh, story time on the weekend. IPL shows on the YouTube channel. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, go to patreon.com slash the final word. I think that's it. I think it is as well. Yep, I think you've captured everything that we need to say. The last thing I might mention, if you haven't said it in a while, if you're using the Apple Podcast app and you wouldn't mind dropping us one of those five-star reviews and, and a rating... Uh, I gather yeah. that helps with the algorithm. So, And there's other yeah. podcast programs where you can do similar things, but I think that for whatever reason, uh, the Apple One carries the most weight. The Al Gore rhythm. The rhythm of Al Gore, <laughs> former vice president and mad salsa dancer. It's been the final word. Uh, we will see you next time you decide to watch or listen to one of our shows. Uh, Bye. I had to go about it.